All right, let's pray. Lord God in heaven, speak to us now through your word that you might be our teacher, our instructor, that you, Father, who spoke the word, let there be light and there was light, that uh, you would, as it were, speak unto us the living and eternal word who is your Son, that we may hear him and hear his voice, and that you would breathe forth your Holy Spirit of wisdom and knowledge, that we might not be as the natural man who does not understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, but that you would reveal your word to us by your Spirit, that we may know it, that we may cherish it, that we may believe it and obey it and walk in it all the days of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're hoping to wrap up our introductory section here of our study of theology proper. Uh, We've considered what theology is in its broadest sense, theology as the study, knowledge, or doctrine of God, and not merely of who God is, but of uh, the attributes of God, the persons of the Godhead, the, the whole counsel of God, theology as, as an entirety is the study, knowledge, or doctrine of God in that sense, the doctrine concerning God and his relationship to his creatures, as Warfield helped us to see the full breadth of that in our previous lecture. Uh, we've been considering the way in which we know theology. We've considered the various uh, means of revelation that God gives, natural or general revelation through creation, conscience, and cognition. We've considered supernatural or special revelation, both before and after the fall. And in particular, we've seen God's redemptive revelation after the fall, His unwritten word through divine utterances, dreams, visions, miracles, Uh, theophanies, appearances of God in a visible way, like the burning bush or the angel of the covenant. Uh, We've seen it in the incarnation, which is the crown of God's revelation to man, God manifest in the flesh. And then we see the written word of God, the written revelation, the canon of scripture as God has inspired it. It's infallible and inerrant and preserved reliably for us even today. Uh, We've seen that flowing out of God's written word according to the principle of sola scriptura, uh, we derive our Christian theology from God's truth revealed in scripture. And that's when we speak of theology now in the more limited sense of Christian theology. Not that Christian theology is one of a variety of valid forms of theology. There's only one true theology, Christian theology. But Christian theology is the study of God's truth revealed in Scripture. We saw last time that this is an objective discipline. It involves intellectual effort. It's logical. It's rational. It's propositional. It's accessible and can be understood both in terms of the basic meaning of the Bible and the basic articulations of the truth of the Bible, it's able to be understood 
even by an unconverted person. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that someone who has no true love for God or man and who ultimately has nothing still can be very eloquent in explaining and declaring the truths of God's Word. Deuteronomy 30 and Romans 10 remind us that this Word is near in our mouth, in our heart, and not just for believers, but in the context of Moses evangelizing the Israelites and Paul evangelizing his audience, he's saying, these things are near us. They're here. We don't have to travel across the ocean to be able to comprehend the basic truth that is set forth in the gospel. So it's an objective discipline. That's why we have Bible colleges and seminaries, and this is, a, in some sense, academic and intellectual. And, uh, and, of course, God's made us all in His own image. We all have minds, so every Christian is a theologian to an extent and able to understand these things. Also, it's subjective. Uh, we saw the, the glass ceiling of knowledge that the unbeliever can have. And so the knowledge of the person without love puffs up, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So it's not the knowledge that accords with godliness that Paul repeatedly references in the pastoral epistles. Uh, the, the, the fullness of theology is, as John Owen says, a spiritual science. It's spiritual, redemptive, it's part of sanctification. Jesus says that salvation is ultimately this, to know God and to know Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Uh, so it's personal, it's interactive. And we looked at William Ames' emphasis on the volitional nature of theology, the, the, he would say the primacy, but we could at least say the significance of the will. Jesus says in John 7, verse 17, this is where we left off last time, that um, if someone wills to do the will of God, then they will know that this doctrine comes from him. So there's a sense in which our will can play a major factor in, in our increase or in the limitations upon our knowledge. Uh, now, having said all that, Christian theology can be broken down into a number of disciplines. What we're going to be doing in our series here is we're going to be engaging in systematic theology, which is one of the subheadings, one of the disciplines that we have listed here as part of Christian theology. But let's look at the variety of disciplines that, that uh, exist in the study of Christian theology. Uh, and I've ordered them here in a particular way so that I can pivot to some helpful quotes, again, from B.B. Warfield. But let me just say, traditionally, there are four aspects of Christian theology. Uh, first, you would have exegetical theology. We'll look at that in a moment. That's interpreting the Bible. Exegeting means to go in and uh, harvest the truth of God's Word, to go in and get it. Not to eisegete, to read something in, but to draw something out. The meaning of the Bible is drawn out through exegetical theology, and this means studying the Scripture, studying the, the canon of Scripture, the books of the Bible, the 66 books of the Bible broken up into Old Testament, New Testament, understanding the context historically, 
understanding the original languages and the grammar that's involved in Greek and Hebrew and a couple of Aramaic passages in Daniel as well. Uh, so this is sort of the grassroots level of theology, just drawing out the meaning of the Bible in the original languages, engaging in hermeneutics, which is uh, the art and science of interpreting the Bible. How do we interpret the Bible? What's our hermeneutic? What's our interpretive framework? What's the way in which uh, we understand the, the interpretation of Scripture? And, and so on and so forth. Rightly dividing the word of truth, we can call it, 2 Timothy 2.15. So you have exegetical theology, then historically, and I'm going to move away from the outline for just a second. Historically, you have exegetical theology, and then you have um, historical theology, which is the study of biblical truth as it's been understood in the church, by the church, through the creeds and confessions and catechisms of the church, the development of the church's understanding of Scripture and its truth throughout history. So historical theology. And then uh, systematic theology, which takes all the truths of Scripture and arranges them logically, topically. Uh, You often see the creeds and confessions of the church operating in a systematic way, right? Chapter one of the Westminster Confession is not a summary of the book of Genesis, right? It's taking the truths of the Bible in their logical relationship and saying, okay, let's start from the beginning. How do we know things from the scriptures? Okay, and who and what are we studying? Okay, we're studying God, the doctrine of God. And you go through the Westminster Confession and it just builds a foundation and lays that foundation and builds an entire cathedral of truth on on that firm foundation, building one stone upon another logically, topically. Systematic theology answers the main questions that we have. So, for instance, there are debates among missionaries of how to spread the gospel. When we go into a tribe and they've never seen a Bible, they've never heard anything other than the light of nature, perhaps, but they've never heard anything about Christianity, about Jesus, about the Bible. They've heard nothing. Where do you start? And you have the ideological zealots who say, well, God's given us the Bible, and so we need to start in Genesis, and we'll just work our way through the entire history of redemption until we get to the cross. And many missionaries have done that. And of course, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's not limited to the New Testament. So God saved many people and transformed tribes through that method. So we're not here to criticize that uh, in in the fullest sense that we could. But but that's perspective A, exegetical. And we'll see in a moment, biblical theology. Let's go Genesis to Revelation. And so who knows how many months or years till we even mention Jesus in terms of Jesus of Nazareth and the first century and his, his death on the cross. Uh, others have looked at that and said, well, hmm, maybe that's not the best way to proceed uh, given the urgency of having people put their trust in Christ. Is it really wise? I mean, many of us have had experience in Bible reading plans where, you know, New Year's Day, we make our resolution, we're all excited, we're reading about the six days of creation and we're plowing on through and by about February or March we hit Leviticus and things forestall to to a great extent. Now that should not be the case 
in some sense, if you get the one-year Bible plan, you get to pick and choose, and some other various helpful plans allow you to read side-by-side side various portions of the Bible to avoid running aground in some of those uh, more difficult sections. But, but is it really the wisest thing to wait a long period of time before you start answering the main questions and addressing the, the main topics that are involved in saving faith in Christ? Don't you want to start with Romans in one sense, right? Sin, salvation, service. So you have the other perspective that says, well, we're just going to go in and, you know, the Romans Road or the Ray Comfort, you know, are you a good person? Are you a good tribesman or whatever? And you're, you're going to just start with those categories and, and systematic theology. Now, I think there's wisdom in a third method, which is what Heart Cry Missionary Society used in uh, Papua, Indonesia, Paul Snyder's group. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, they did both. So they had multiple meetings during the week. I think it was something along the lines that at the, at the midweek meeting, they did the biblical theology, the going through Genesis to Revelation, redemptive history. And then on the Lord's Day in the sermons, they would be preaching and teaching, uh, you know, the gospel in, in, in all of its logical framework, just boom, right away preaching sin and salvation. It, it was something like that. I don't remember which meeting involved which topic, but, but that's how they did it. They, they did both approaches, and I think that's probably the best way to go. And if we had to choose one, I think if you look at the way the apostles operated in the early church, uh, and you think of uh, Philip on the road to, or as he um, meets up with the Ethiopian eunuch on his way back from the feast, uh, I don't think Philip recited all the main points from Gerhardus Voss' biblical theology. I think he, he cut to the chase of sin, salvation, the church, baptism, what prevents me from being baptized, so on and so forth. So if we had to err on one side, we would cut to the chase with systematic theology. But hopefully this serves to illustrate that there, there are different approaches, different angles by which we perceive and, and set forth the same truths. You know, if whatever their preaching and teaching in terms of redemptive history in Papua, Indonesia, it's not contradicting what they're saying when they proclaim the systematic truths of the gospel. These things uh, work together in a symbiotic relationship. So uh, then fourthly, so you have exegetical, historical, systematic, and then fourthly, practical theology that would involve homiletics, teaching people to preach the word. Uh, it would involve uh, in some sense, a theology of Christian worship and uh, church government, church discipline, biblical counseling, uh, pastoral training for dealing with various uh, relational issues in the church. Uh, also, it would involve experimental uh, theology. So practical theology would include things like Jonathan Edwards, The Religious Affections, where he goes through what is a credible profession of faith, what is true spirituality versus some of the stuff that was happening in the Great Awakening, uh, of which he was critical, where people were substituting a, a sort of mystical superstition for true saving faith. So dealing with what is a credible profession of faith, the marks of grace, these are all elements of pastoral or practical, sorry, practical theology. So 
historically, you've got exegetical, historical, systematic, and practical. But we're going to look at it slightly different. Obviously, we would all start with exegetical theology. So that whatever we believe, whatever you share with someone, when you meet up with someone and you're seeking to share the gospel with them or you're seeking to explain biblical truths and doctrines and helping them to understand important questions, when you're doing that, you should always be able to encourage them to do what the noble Bereans did in the book of Acts, which is to search the scriptures to see if these things are so. You should always be able to encourage people to do that, and they should be able to look into the Word of God and see that you're drawing out what's already in there. You're drawing out the meaning from the text. Uh, It is important to have preachers and teachers and brothers in Christ to explain things to us. Uh, The Ethiopian eunuch obviously said, I need need someone to help me understand, Uh, someone to help teach me and help interpret Isaiah 53 so that I know what it's saying. But that needs to begin, that whole process of knowing and even teaching theology has to begin with exegesis or drawing out the meaning of the Bible. And so uh, every Christian should have some knowledge of the canon of the Bible, okay? The 66 books, 39 in the old, 27 in the new. You can memorize a, a song, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, you can memorize the whole thing. So you got it all down. And then when somebody says, turn to uh, Nahum, you can say, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Um, and you know where it's at. You can find it. You don't have to get one of those uh, tacky Bibles with the, the, what do you call that? Tab on it. Index, right. So, so, you can, so you need exegetical theology, knowing the books of the Bible and where they're found. Uh, knowing the basic content of the various books of the Bible, you can even start in terms of the sections of the Bible, as we'll see in a moment with biblical theology. You can look at the books of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms and the writings. But understanding just what are these books all about? Who wrote them? What's the context historically? You can get resources that will help you, like Strong's Concordance, and you get your eSword app, and you can get, you know, your favorite translation. Uh, I think the New King James, you can buy it, put it on there. The King James is free. And you can click on little links to see what the meaning of this Greek or Hebrew word is based on Strong's Concordance and, and various Greek and Hebrew lexicons. So even as a quote-unquote layperson, you can gain a great uh, knowledge of exegetical theology. You can get commentaries. and So that's that's exegetical theology, learning to rightly divide the word of truth. Now, flowing out of exegetical theology is biblical theology. Now, you could say biblical theology is a subset of exegetical theology. However, it has become such a massive influence and such a significant player in the world of theology by this point that it really deserves a spot all by itself. And, uh, and many seminaries have a professor of biblical theology. Old Princeton hired Gerhardus Voss, who was teaching in Grand Rapids at the Christian Reformed Seminary, which is now Calvin College, Calvin Seminary. He was teaching there. He was teaching systematic theology there, actually. But they hired him to come to Princeton and teach 
biblical theology and to be the professor, the chairman, the chair of biblical theology at Princeton. So it really does deserve a place, not below exegetical theology, but right next to it, next in line. Once we understand the basic meaning and content of the Bible, we begin to grapple with uh, the layers of its context. So we look at the, the books of the Bible, the authors of the Bible, the, the subsections of the Bible. And so we have this timeline from Genesis to Revelation, but now we begin to see, wait a second, the first five books are the books of Moses. Moses wrote those books, and those books deal with from the beginning of creation up until Israel is right ready to go into the promised land after the exodus and the wandering in the wilderness. So you see the context of these five books, and you can gain a better understanding of a proper interpretation of the meaning if you know, wait a second, this biblical author uses this same phrase, let's say Moses, he uses the same phrase in this passage that's really hard to understand. He uses it in a different passage in his writings, and it's very clear and easy to understand in that other passage. And so therefore, we can have a greater degree of confidence interpreting the more difficult passage in light of the uh, clearer passage. Now, that's a general principle in Scripture. We can look for cross-references in any part of the Bible, but especially if we're understanding the particular grammatical structure and style of Moses, it's going to be all the more significant if we can find a parallel cross-reference in Moses. And again, you then go on further and you have the historical books, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and, and uh, the Samuels, the Kings, the Chronicles, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, all these books, you, you can begin to gain greater and greater insight when you can cross-reference passages from the same author or the same time period, understanding that Isaiah and Micah wrote around the same time, I think, if I'm not mistaken. And, and you draw these connections and parallels, and you can begin to see a theology of Moses. Not that it's different, like the liberal scholars say, oh, Moses thought this, and then this other, the prophets said that, and Paul says this, and James says that. Not setting them against each other, but understanding that uh, each of these authors has a different way of communicating in a different context, and so you gain insight from one and from the other, the similarities and differences of their style and of their context. And so you can see a theology of Moses. Let's see what God revealed about himself up to this point in history and understand what the saints of God understood at that point. And then let's see beyond that, the period of the judges and the kings and the prophets. And then let's come to the first century and we come to the New Testament and we look at the situation in which Jesus found himself, in which there was the Old Testament. And here's what it taught and here's how they understood it. And here's how Matthew and Mark and Luke and John distinctly give us perspectives on the life of Christ. Uh, the Gospels are like instant replay in the playoffs uh, or the World Series. Somebody steals second, and we're trying to figure out if the shortstop tug him or if he is safe. Did, did the shortstop's glove tag the runner with the ball before he touched the base? Or did he come off the base? Okay. And so you've got four different camera angles, and they're all accurate, but one of those camera angles might show, ah, 
he's out. Even though all of them are accurate, there are different insights and different perspectives that we can gain from one of the gospel writers versus the other. And knowing how they each write and the way in which they speak, it, it, gains, it, it really gives us a more in-depth analysis and understanding of any given passage within the context of the chronological timeline and the development of doctrinal revelation from Genesis to Revelation. And uh, it, the other thing you can do is you can do a biblical theology of marriage, right? So instead of a systematic theology of marriage where you're going through all the major points and subpoints, logically, topically, uh, you can go through a biblical theology of marriage and say, all right, we're going to start with Genesis 1 through 3, and then we're going to see how this played itself out in the Old Testament law, and then we're going to look at the New Testament. And honestly, most systematic treatments of marriage end up being biblical theology because you feel like you have to start in Genesis anyway. So there's overlap, but you could do a biblical theology of the doctrine of Christ, how things are revealed gradually uh, uh, until the, the full dawning of the New Testament and the Son of Righteousness arises with healing in His wings. You could do a biblical theology of preaching. Who were the first preachers? Uh, you know, Enoch or Noah or something like that and follow it through till the end. So th this is very important. Uh, also then, systematic theology. Systematic theology builds on exegetical and biblical theology. I've listed historical theology afterward for a very important reason, but you could list it first. That's fine. Systematics builds on that too. But, but systematic theology is not proof texting. It, it's not just finding, oh, here's a verse in Job. I think I'll quote that. Or, or, you know, Jesus in the Olivet Discourse says, let your flight not be on the Sabbath, so I'm going to cancel my plane tickets or something. You, you don't want to take these things out of context. You have to understand the exegetical and biblical theology. Then you begin to answer the big questions. And then you've polished your stones. You're ready to lay the foundation and build that cathedral of biblical doctrine. Um, and uh, so more could be said there. But that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be doing systematic theology. Now there's also historical theology. And I list it after systematics because in some sense I think it could go either way, right? You could argue that learning from the doctrinal developments within church history should actually help guide you from biblical theology to, to building your system because you want to take what you've inherited from our forefathers and learn from it. Um, and so you need to understand the creeds of the church. You need to understand the great theologians of the church. You want, you want to read these things and learn so that you can be guided by them. You could argue that, and I think that's valid. Um, but there's another sense in which that historical theology can come afterward as a check and a balance to say, okay, we've looked at Scripture, we've looked at the Bible and its theology, we, we, we're ready to answer the big questions, but let's check our answers. Let's look at what the great creeds of the church have said. Let's look at what the great theologians have said. And uh, in some sense, if you don't know something about systematic theology, you won't know what the great creeds are versus the ones that you should disregard or what the great theologians are versus, um, you know, the, the other guys. 
So, so historical theology is crucial that we understand what the church has historically taught, and we can begin to realize there are a lot of teachings in the church today that we might be tempted to, to read into the Bible, but when you look at historical theology, you see, wait a second, th- these are new teachings that just cropped up in the late 19th or early 20th century, and they are completely foreign to the history of Reformed theology or even Christian theology. So, whoa, let's hit the brakes and go back and re-examine the text because maybe we've gone off course. Uh, As Charles Hodge essentially said, uh, nothing in his systematic theology was new. You know, new theology is usually bad theology. You might gain a new insight on a particular text or a relationship between one truth and another truth. We should always be looking for things old and things new, but if it's a new doctrine, beware. So uh, th- this, is, this is a helpful corrective to, to sort of for quality control to look at what the church has been saying over the years. If your doctrine of the Trinity violates the Nicene Creed, um, yes, go back and study the Scripture again, but just in the meantime, let's assume you're wrong, and uh, then we can figure out maybe where you went off course. But um, we should not be enslaved to church history but in terms of the big doctrines throughout the history of the church, uh, it's very unlikely that you or I are going to be right and the whole history of the church is wrong. So keep that in mind. We mentioned practical theology, which sort of is the outflow of systematics. Systematic theology is the queen of the sciences. That's a standard phraseology. And uh, theology is the queen of the sciences, but we could say systematics is the crown jewel of the queen of the sciences. Now, within systematic theology, now there's some other subsets. You have, uh, you'll find this, you can buy books that are really systematic theology, but they come in the form of an exposition of a creed, a confession, or a catechism. So you can find Ursinus, who was the co-author of the Heidelberg Catechism. There's a book where Ursinus gives a commentary on the Heidelberg. Really helpful. Uh, J.G. Voss, Gerhardus Voss's son, has a commentary on the Westminster Larger Catechism. G.I. Williamson has commentaries on the Westminster Confession, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. There are all these different creedal, uh, books of creedal theology that are expounding the systematic theology in the creeds, confessions, and catechisms of the church. And of course, um, every Reformed catechism has four basic building blocks. You've got the Apostles' Creed, either stated or unstated. Shorter catechism has all the content of the Apostles' Creed, the basic thrust of it, even though it's not quoted. Um, You've got the Apostles' Creed. You've got the Ten Commandments. You've got the sacraments explaining what they mean. And you've got the Lord's Prayer. So two of those sections are part of the Bible, the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer. So you'll buy books where Thomas Watson explains the Lord's Prayer or explains the Ten Commandments. And you come to find it's really part of a larger series that Watson was doing on um, systematic theology, on expounding the Shorter Catechism. And they just made specific volumes of the parts of the Catechism that dealt with the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer. So as you're trying to learn systematic theology, I would say this is actually one of the most efficient ways to learn. Uh, 
a sound theologian expounding either uh, the Heidelberg Catechism or one of the Dutch Reformed Standards or an aspect of the Westminster Standards, the Confession or one of the Catechisms. That's a very safe, effective, and efficient way to learn your theology because they're just uh, expounding tr- the, the system of truth that's been accepted throughout many generations in the Dutch church or in the Scottish Reformed heritage. So very, very helpful. Uh, it's a kind of a shortcut life hack to learn systematic theology. Read J.G. Voss on the larger catechism. But then there's systematics or dogmatics, systematic theology in particular. This is dealing with the logical or topical arrangement of biblical doctrine as set forth by a particular author. And I'm going to speed to the end here. We're, I, I'm really hopeful we're going to get done. Um, so there are a number of ways in which systematic theology is done. Okay? And, and it's, it's, it's something that we should be aware of. There's the dogmatic approach, and that doesn't mean somebody's like really overzealous or something like that. Dogmatic, the word dogma comes from the same root as, uh, I think, doctrine, something along those lines. The idea is these are uh, official teachings of the church. These are the, uh, this is a summary of what, for instance, the Reformed Church teaches, And so they'll go through the major categories of doctrine that are set forth in the confessions of the church, and they'll go through them in a very conventional way, like Louis Burkhoff or just a basic systematic theology. Um, uh, They construct their, their foundation, and it's just very constructive. They're not dealing so much with refuting errors and dealing with controversies and historical theology and quoting this group against that group. It's not really involved in that. It's just almost like a textbook. It reads like a textbook, these kind of uh, volumes. It's very academic. It's intellectual. It just sets it forth and you learn it just like you'd read a manual on some other uh, system of thought. Okay. Then there's polemical systematic theology. This is where you have volumes where they deal with the same categories, doctrine of God, doctrine of Christ, doctrine of Scripture, doctrine of um, salvation, doctrine of uh, the last things, the eschatology, the end times. They deal with these things, okay, but in a, in a polemical, elenctic, controversial way, this against that. And so you see with Francis Turretin, he'll say, do we affirm the Apocrypha as the inspired word of God? And then it'll say, uh, we deny against the papists. And then he'll go and explain the the debate. He'll give the scriptural basis for the evidence for that conclusion. And then he'll refute the opposing views. This can be very helpful. Uh, You saw in our series on the federal vision, it can be helpful to learn doctrine by seeing it contrasted with error. Seeing true doctrine in contrast to error, it's like seeing the stars in the dark night sky. So uh, polemical theology can be very helpful, and you can find out, wait a second, there's this doctrinal conviction that I've always had, but wait, Turretin's refuting it as a belief of the papists. Oh no, what have I done, right? So you can kind of uh, come to grips with some, some things in your life which are helpful. So also you have holistic So there's a holistic method. This is what we're going to be doing. Holistic theology. 
This is theology that sets forth the theory and the practice. This is theology that, that sets forth uh, the, yes, the objective, but also the subjective. It sets forth the knowledge that accords with godliness. So there's application. Now, in our introductory lectures, we have not been doing that because it's introductory. But uh, when we go through the doctrine of God, we're going to be looking at it holistically, not just in a conventional, constructive, academic, Louis Burkhoff kind of way, not only in a way of this view versus that view like Turretin, but we're going to be looking at it both theoretical and practical. Uh, and Reformation Heritage Books has been publishing a really helpful modern translation of Peter Van Maastricht's theoretical, practical theology. That's probably the worst name from a marketing standpoint that you could possibly come up with, but uh, it's a great concept. What it's communicating with those words is that it's both theory and practice, that it's both knowledge and the implications for a godly life. So we're going to be seeking to do that and having application for our practical Christian life. Uh, Now, Van Maastricht does, he, he begins with a passage of Scripture which explains the doctrine from the Scripture, shows the basis for it. Then he summarizes the doctrinal formulas of of the Reformed Church, the dogmatic section. Then he goes into the polemics, defending it against errors, and then he brings the application. And he actually says that in terms of preaching, he wrote a little book as well called The Best Method of Preaching, and he says that's how preaching should be done. Start with the Scripture, okay? And uh, then you explain, summarize the doctrine of the Scripture, and then you refute errors and objections, and then you bring an application. And... And that probably is the best method of preaching. I mean, I don't use that all the time, but I've used that, and I've found it to be very helpful. So uh, this is the way we're going to be operating. And I would say this is the way that you can study your Bible. You draw out truths through reading commentaries, reading the Bible itself, and then you also read systematic theology to understand how are these things summarized and articulated throughout church history. And then you can read books on, on controversies. You know, what about infant baptism? Or what about images of Christ? Or what about uh, different distinctives of biblical worship in the, in the worship service? Should we have instruments or not? Should we sing uninspired songs or only the Psalms? These kind of controversial issues, you can study these things then, buy a paperback book on an issue. Um, not as your, the, the totality of your study, there are a lot of paper-thin internet warriors out there. All they seem to read are these blog posts and paperback books. But you're just incorporating that as part of your study and becoming familiar with the debates and then the application. That's where you're also reading sermons. Uh, Puritan sermons, Reformed preaching, sermons that are going to bring home the application. Or you could read Van Maastricht. He does it all in one in, in all in one in his series. Now, so we're going to do it holistically. Uh, in terms of systematic theology, then, this is going to break down into a number of topics. Uh, you have prolegomena, that's what we're doing now. Just introduction to theology itself. How do we define it? Um, what's the difference between theology and philosophy? We're saying for theology, we're going to go to sola scriptura. 
We might use philosophy as a handmaiden to help bring forth a clear articulation of the truth, but uh, it's theology from the Bible, not mere philosophy. And there's some level of apologetics that arguably comes into play there. We won't say more at this point. So you have prolegomena. This is the first principles. I don't know why they don't come up with a better term. It's uh, prolegomena, not a very um, graceful word there, but first principles. Secondly, theology proper. That's what we're doing as soon as we finish this lecture. We're going to get to theology proper, the doctrine of God. And this, once again, is the center of our theology. This is what we call it theology because the aspect that involves theology proper is the center. It's the most important aspect of it. If you go to Isaiah 40, comfort my people, behold your God, the the good news of Christ being proclaimed by John the Baptist, the voice in the wilderness, and he proclaims all fleshes as grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God abides forever. So you have this robust uh, declaration of the gospel that sets the tone for the rest of the book of Isaiah, which by the way has 66 books just like the Bible or 66 chapters, just like the Bible has 66 books. And just like in the Old Testament, you've got 39 books. In that first section of Isaiah, you've got 39 chapters. And then the 40th book of the Bible is Matthew, beginning the New Testament, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the 40th chapter of Isaiah really brings the focus uh, more than ever to the gospel of Christ and his coming and, and on in on through the 66th book uh, or chapter of Isaiah, which ends with a statement of God's eternal wrath against sinners. So uh, that's just in God's providence. It happened to be that way, but it's an easy way to remember the structure of the Bible and the structure of Isaiah. But when Isaiah brings forth that gospel in chapter 40 in, in a more powerful way than he had before, you see that almost the whole chapter is about God behold your God. We would think that the summary of the gospel that comforts God's people would say more about Christ. Of course, it does say things about Christ, but fundamentally it speaks of the infinite majesty of God. Read Isaiah 40 and you will see that theology is really where it all begins. And that's where after the prolegomena, after the first principles, it all begins with theology proper Then the doctrine of man, anthropology, creation, man's made in the image of God. We deal with human free will. Uh, We do deal with the covenant of works, the fall into sin, the law of God. Then you go to the doctrine of Christ, one person with two natures, God and man. His offices, prophet, priest, and king, his work as... uh, the priest offering himself, and then as our intercessor, uh, our, so on and so forth. The doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of the last things. These are the categories of our system of theology. It's good to know they're there, and it's good for us to begin with theology proper. Now, what's that going to involve in, in conclusion here? We're going to be looking at God's existence. This is where we'll bring in something of apologetics. 
How do we know God exists? What are the arguments that demonstrate God's existence? Should we have arguments to demonstrate God's existence? Or, or do we just presuppose it? Or is it a little of both? We're going to address God's existence. And uh, then we're going to look at the way in which God reveals himself in greater detail, along with practical application of, for instance, if all of creation reveals God's attributes, how should Christians live their life in the world? How should we look at the the trees and the sunshine and the stars at night? Uh, We're going to make application on these things. General revelation, special revelation. God's names, uh, Jehovah, Elohim, Adonai, the names of God, the way in which he specially reveals himself first and foremost is in his names, then his attributes, and then his triunity, one essence, three personal subsistences, three persons, and uh, then potentially, you'll see that in your outline, I haven't uh, emboldened or capitalized the last couple points there, God's decrees and God's works. I'm not sure if and when we'll get to those. But God's existence, his revelation, his names, his attributes, and his triunity are things that we're going to be studying and things that are of the essence of the Christian life. To understand them, to live in light of them, we're going to seek to understand the theory, the practice, the objective, the subjective Uh, But in conclusion, I want to leave you with a quotation from B.B. Warfield. We talked about the relationship between uh, exegetical theology and biblical theology and systematics. So I just want to leave you with this quotation from B.B. Warfield. I think it's genius, excellent. Quote, The immediate work of exegesis may be compared to the work of a recruiting officer. It draws out from the mass of mankind the men who are to constitute the army. Biblical theology organizes these men into companies and regiments and corps, arranging in marching order uh, and equipping for service. So he says that you've got exegetical theology, you've got all the individual recruits, but then biblical theology organizes them, Moses, the prophets, the historical books, the, the writings, the gospels, the epistles, so on and so forth, uh, they're organized, they're equipped now by biblical theology. He goes on, quote, systematic theology combines these companies and regiments and corps into an army drawn up in battle array against the enemy of the day. It too is composed of men, the same men which were recruited by exegetics, but it is composed of these men not as individuals merely, but in their due relations to the other men of their companies and regiments and corps, end quote. And obviously by men he means the truths, the truths that we gain from the Bible, organized then into biblical theology and sent forth as a mighty army to destroy the works of the devil. That's why we're doing this. We're doing this so that Satan's kingdom would be defeated. And that's why we do systematic theology. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, We give thanks for your truth, your word that is the truth, the truth that is ours in Jesus, which he has declared to us. We pray that we would value it and cherish it, that we would uh, take it very seriously, and that we would love you with all of our minds, seeking to understand 
and appreciate and apply your truth as a great treasure, as uh, more precious than gold, yea, much fine gold, as sweeter than honey from the honeycomb, and as a mighty and powerful sword of the Holy Spirit by which we may vanquish the enemy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.